from the studio of KPSU Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. As the United States entered the 1960s, general optimism that previously prevailed screeched to a halt with campus and urban unrest. An emerging youth movement, particularly among African Americans, college students, and women, challenged the accepted traditions of segregation, militarism, patriarchy. How does this movement appear today from the perspective of a cultural historian who lived it? Additionally, How do memoirs assist historians seeking to understand the aspirations and actions of those in the past? We've asked longtime Portland State University professor David A. Horowitz to join us, Ryan Wisnor, with Joshua Justice, here on Beyond Footnotes, to help us answer these questions. David A. Horowitz is a scholar of U.S. cultural and political history and began his career at Portland State University six decades ago. The late 60s were a turbulent time for the PSU campus, which culminated in the student strike in 1970 following the Kent State shootings. He is author of several books, including America's Political Class Under Fire, The 20th Century's Great Cultural Wars, and additionally he edited uh, Inside the Clavern, The Secret History of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, which was a collection of official meeting minutes from the LaGrange, Oregon chapter of the KKK. David Horowitz joins us today to discuss his latest book entitled Getting There, an American Cultural Odyssey. In this personal memoir, David engages readers with his own encounters through American history, including his role in the 1970 PSU student strike. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes, David. Thanks for joining us. Well, great. It's good to be here. Well, I think uh, where to begin is uh, my first question is how did you, um, who, who did you have in mind when you wrote these memoirs? Who did I have in mind? Um, well, f- over the years, I would tell anecdotes in my uh, cultural and political history classes about ways in which my life had intersected with things we were studying. And somebody said, you know, you ought to write a memoir. And I just sort of put that on the back burner for many, many years. And uh, finally decided, you know, I think there's enough stuff that happened in my life that I was part of and continue to be part of in one way or another that it, it, it's worth a try. And I began writing it in 2003. Um, I thought my audience was really a general audience of people who were interested in politics, culture, and the aspirations of American life. And I guess I had a particular interest in talking to progressives. Um, I did continue to identify myself as a progressive, but I also identify myself as sort of a critic of the movement from within, sort of throwing rocks from inside the tent, if you will. So I had a very broad sense of who my audience might be. So, you know, as we just mentioned, you've written a number of books already. What was it like to sort of turn this focus on yourself? really hard. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Um, You know, the problem of doing history, as any historian will tell you, is selectivity of evidence. (laughs) That's where the subjectivity comes in. So I was constantly, constantly confronted. This is really interesting to me, this particular story, but does it fit into an overall narrative? And would it be interesting to someone who doesn't know me? And there were a lot of things about my personal life um, that I wound up editing out. (laughs) Uh, There were some things I sanitized. (laughs) Um, I I kind of thought that was a strategic decision. You know, um, if I told, shared all of the unseemly aspects of my personal life and some of the terrible decisions I made and my terrible judgment and lapses, I was afraid the reader would lose all confidence in me and say, I don't want to read about this idiot anymore. And so I had to sanitize certain aspects of my personal life, although, you know, I'm pretty hard on myself, I think, at other times. 
Well, you you grew up in the Bronx neighborhood of New York. Yeah. Um, can you describe for us the neighborhood as you remember it and tell us uh, a little bit about that environment? Yeah, you know, many years ago, um, we had a conference here at Portland State in the history department um, about uh, doing history and writing history and teaching writing to students. And we had a workshop and in which uh, our guest said, you know, people have the best memories uh, b- from their life between the ages of 8 and 10. And that's when they're beginning to notice things in the world, but they're not sort of intimidated by social appropriateness as they reach their teenage years. And he asked us to write a paragraph about what we remembered about our lives between the ages of 8 and 10. And I wrote a paragraph about growing up in the West Bronx in an apartment building. And, um, you know, that became the basis of a lot of things I did afterwards. Many years later, I I wrote a piece uh, called Dreaming of the Bronx, The Faith of a Bronx Dreamer, uh, for a newsletter that was designed for people who grew up in the in the Bronx in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and um, I, I dream, I dream about living back there in the old neighborhood. It was a very cohesive neighborhood, mainly Jew American Jews, working class and lower middle class, a uh, pretty stable neighborhood at the time I grew up in in the late 1940s and um, the first half of the 1950s, and um, I have very fond memories of it. Um, when my family moved to the suburbs, I was kind of lost. The suburbs seemed so vacuous, and I, I didn't have the kind of friends that I'd had in the Bronx. And part of the problem was that we moved out of the Bronx uh, after ninth, my ninth grade. I was 15, and I was just beginning to get into a circle where there were girls on the periphery, you know, and I knew something was going to happen. And then <laughs> it got taken away from me, and uh, we, we moved from a lower middle class neighborhood to an upper middle class suburban neighborhood and I, I was intimidated you know and I lost my confidence and um, well that was another story <laughs> uh, folks who have taken your class know that you're also a musician and um, I think from what I gather that came from partially from your father is that right well my father was a lyricist mm-hmm. my father was a lyricist and um, <laughs> my father in uh, the late 30s and early 40s wrote um, the lyrics to what were to be Negro spirituals. (laughs) He wrote them in Negro dialect, which was forever an embarrassment to my mother. (laughs) Um, But I I think he meant to romanticize simple people because my father wrote a lot of dialect short stories. It could be Italian dialect, Yiddish dialect, um, and here he was writing in black dialect, Negro dialect, and it was basically a song. One of the songs was called Chicken Dinner, which was a celebration of a black f- rural family sitting down to a dinner and saying their prayers and the, the, the solidarity of the family. And in my mind, my dad was writing about a Jewish family in the shtetl in Eastern Europe. You know, he saw the same. He loved the simplicity of ordinary people's language. He didn't mean to be racist, you know. Uh, but um, he was a lyricist, and uh, the man he wrote them. Um, who wrote the music for those songs became my piano teacher. Okay. And I, I grew up with lots of musical comedy and popular music, you know, on the phonograph and on the radio and um, went to a, a summer day camp in 1949. And there was a, an amateur day camp counselor show at the end. And there was this, what I thought was this gorgeous woman counselor singing this torch song and there was a guy playing the piano, feeding her chords. And I thought that was about the neatest thing I'd ever seen. And that's when I decided I wanted to learn to play piano. <laughs> uh, so how about your mother? Tell us a little bit about her. My mother, um, my mother was, um, came from um, a, a Jewish middle-class family. Her, her mother was uh, um, active in the Socialist Party, um, first of Eugene Debs and then Norman Thomas, uh, a great social justice crusader. My mother went to Hunter College during the Depression to study journalism, of all things. <laughs> and, um, That's where the money's at, right? <laughs> yeah, right, in the Great Depression, yeah. Um, and became a socialist, uh, part of the Socialist Workers' Party, a Trotskyist, a follower of Leon Trotsky. That's why my family was always anti-Stalinist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalin was just as bad as Hitler in our family. Yeah. Um, and um, she was a Trotskyist, as was her brother, my Uncle Mickey, later. And uh, she was a class-conscious poet and writer. And um, through a long story, my dad met her up at her parents' seedy resort in the Catskill Mountains. And um, she was 
nine years younger than he was, and she adopted him basically as her project. He was this romantic, working-class, uneducated poet from the Bronx that she wanted to make into a class-conscious proletariat, which she never succeeded in doing. Uh, and he fell in love with her, um, and she basically took care of him, in a sense, <laughs> spiritually and emotionally, you know, their entire uh, marriage. Um, and she um, went on to become, um, went back to school in the 1950s to become a, an elementary school teacher and then a guidance counselor and then taught guidance principles at Long Island University as an adjunct instructor and um, was a, a wonderful poet, a wonderful poet, a better writer than my dad was, more disciplined. Uh, she was a, the cerebral part of, of the family and he was um, kind of the peasant emotional kind. And, you know, I've inherited both of their traits and I'm very happy about it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's a fortunate combination. Um, so let's kind of turn the lens back at you. Um, how did you become a historian? Well, I became a historian, of course, by accident, which I think most good things in life happen that way. Um, I was at college. I went to Antioch College, which is a progressive liberal arts college in southwestern Ohio, and um, rooming with uh, two history majors. And uh, they came back one day and said, you know, you ought to come to our history class, uh, this 20th century history class. You'll love this guy. He makes everything come alive. And so I went and sat in on it, and I fell in love with history. Lewis Filler was his name, and he was an expert on the progressive reformers. And um, it seemed like every paper I had written for all my other classes was basically a social history or intellectual history paper. And... Um, uh, um, I wound up working with him and did um, an uh, undergraduate thesis on uh, the 1930s novelist John Dos Passos, who wrote the classic radical novel USA, and talked about his transition to becoming a conservative. And uh, I would have a, a long-time relationship with Lewis Filler, who became very reactionary and very conservative and very cranky for many reasons. Um, and I was, I'd go to history conferences in the 1980s and 90s, and I'd be the only one who would talk to him. You know, he was such a crank. He became so angry. At, he became angry, as I explained in the memoir, partially because um, his son died of a heroin overdose mm -hmm. during the late 60s, and he blamed that on the counterculture and Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Sure. He was very bitter about that. And... Um, Having dealt with my dad, who at times was very cranky and very conservative, I, I'm able to deal very often <laughs> with older people who are cranks. And I just felt an obligation to filler all through my life um, because he had really turned me on to history. He had made it seem like it was really exciting. It was about human beings, you know, and he engaged me. Mm -hmm. And I always loved him for that. So that's how I became a historian and then decided, well, I guess I go to graduate school. <laughs> I didn't know what to do after college. Yeah. Wound up going to Minneapolis, the University of Minnesota, and studying under David W. Noble, which was another revelation. <laughs> Spring of 1960, in your memoir, you described that you were searching for a camera in order to go to Nashville. Now, what is the connection there? Well, I'm sitting in the coffee shop of the college, and the news editor comes along, and I'd done copy editing for the newspaper. So I was on the staff. He says, hey, Horowitz, can you get yourself a camera? I said, what's going on? He said, we're going to Nashville. We're going to cover the sit-ins. You know, we need someone to take pictures. And I tried to find a camera, and I couldn't. He said, oh, come on, come on along anyhow. <laughs> and so uh, we went to Nashville. It's not that long from, you know, southern Ohio. And we stayed at the home of um, a, a Negro student's father who, who taught at uh, Fisk. Okay. Um, and um, we, we talked to all the people. We did well, all these interviews. Uh, we talked to John Lewis and Diane Nash and held hands with Guy Carowin and sang We Shall Overcome, you know, with the theological seminary and talked to the professor at, at Vanderbilt and talked to the lawyer who had defended the black students. And um, it was an enormous impact. I, I had had a, been introduced to civil rights at home because my uncle was the national chair of the American Veterans Committee, a national liberal veterans organization formed after World War II, which was the first racially integrated veterans organization in the United States when the American Legion still did not accept black veterans. 
And my uncle had gone on a tour of VA hospitals in the South to see how Negro veterans were being treated and was run out of Mississippi. Mm. I mean, there was a price on his head for the Jew, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) agitator. He was put in the trunk of a car Mm. and taken to the Tennessee border, you know, by civil rights, black civil rights activists and sent a report to the House Veterans Affairs Committee on the prejudice, you know, mistreatment of Negro veterans in the federal VA hospitals. So um, Eleanor Roosevelt spoke at my uncle's second inauguration as the national chair of the American Veterans Committee. Um, And, of course, she was a committed civil rights champion. Um, I have a picture of me sitting at the table with her above me giving that speech that sits in my home. Um, So I knew a lot about civil rights. Yeah. You had no misconceptions about how you would be received on your trip to Nashville then right. when you got there. Uh, wh- I mean, what do you think about now when you think about that? It, it, in your memoir, you talk about the first time that you heard the song, We Shall Overcome, which you mentioned. I mean, yeah. can take us back to that, that moment. I, well, you know, we're, we were in the, the recreation room or whatever of the theological seminary and— um, People like John Lewis dressed in dark three-piece suits, and, and the women are dressed like it's Sunday church. I mean, these people were so well-dressed. They were so well-versed. The, I, I knew about middle-class Negro people because I went to college with several, you know, who were my friends, you know. But um, the decorum, you know, the dignity was so enormous. And... Um, and then Guy Carowan, who was this white folk singer in jeans and a work shirt... Uh, who had been part of the Highlander Folk School, which was a long-running inst- progressive institution in Tennessee, he, we joined hands, and he led us. It's the first time I'd ever heard We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. And my voice still quivers when I think about that moment. It was, I'm not a religious person, but that was a sacred moment, you know. And I came back uh, to campus a total convert <laughs> to the civil rights movement, not that I had been an opponent, but I had friends in my dormitory saying, well, if the Negro people, it's just these northern agitators, you know, if black people wanted their freedom, they would, you know, talk about it, but they don't, you know, I and mean, it was this kind of argument, you know. And I tried to write a paper for my social psychology of utopian communities class mm-hmm. about the Negro civil rights movement as a utopian community, and I got a C plus. <laughs> the, the TA didn't buy it. <laughs> I think it was on to something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you found your way to the University of Minnesota, uh, yes. graduate school. You said you got there because you, you weren't too sure what your next step was, but you found right. yourself in graduate school. So who did you work with at University of Minnesota? I worked with David W. Noble, who was the intellect, American intellectual historian there, um, who um, had a wonderful sense of irony and uh, talked about uh, Americans as trying to escape history, particularly historians, and talked about the uh, metaphor of two worlds, the corrupt old world and the natural new world. And he was basically you know, trying to penetrate that paradigm and, and to show through a, a kind of American studies approach you know, how intellectually bankrupt that was and hypocritical it was. And I studied uh, my first year with Alan Spear, um, the, a class called Race and Nationality. It was one of the first so-called Negro history classes in a white, predominantly white university. I think that was being offered. He had just come out of Yale, and he had done his Ph.D. on the development of the Chicago uh, black inner city community uh, in the 1920s. Um, he, by the way, would become the first uh, state legislator in the United States to come out openly as a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and Alan Spears' classes were great. I, I, and uh, he asked a question on the final exam, and I wrote this diatribe. And he said, well, David X, <laughs> I suppose I should say that this is full of invective and polemic, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after University of Minnesota, that sort of brings us up to 1968, the year you arrived in Portland. And... A year later, we found you speaking um, at a faculty meeting regarding the upcoming student strike.
continue to operate in our traditional professional roles and continue to stress intellectual discipline in our classrooms, that somehow we as individuals will be acting effectively in what's now an overwhelming moral issue, the issue of American involvement in Far East and Asia. It seems to me that our society rests on our doing this very thing, quietly as intellectuals, sort of um, conversing with our students, talking with them in analytic, abstract terms, and not engaging ourselves as human beings in overriding political issues. Um, our system seems to function and maintain established practices best when we as individuals confine ourselves to some pigeonhole role, when we confine ourselves to a very specialized notion of what we are as human beings. Now, I think there is an overriding moral issue concerned here, and that is what are all of us as individuals going to do about the position of our country in terms of world affairs, a position which many of us find to be the essence of a lack of uh, the essence of uh, dehumanized relationships. What is our position to be? What, where are we going to place ourselves? My point is, social systems function when people confine themselves to very specialized roles and don't act as full, complete human beings. Social systems function when we separate our ideals and our thoughts and our philosophy from where we put our bodies and what we do as active, full, complete untruncated human beings. Um, the university is very much involved as an institution, not as an aggregate of individuals, but as an institution. The university as an institution functioning in a social system is very much involved with preserving established practices, with preserving established ways of thinking. Um, I haven't, it wasn't that long ago when I was a student, so I sort of remember these things, but never mind what we teach or what we say in our courses, just think about the process of going, registering at a university of 10,000 people, going into a class and taking down what a person says, writing back in a blue book what the person says, getting a grade which is to symbolize one's achievement in this, the very discipline involved, the very, not an internal discipline, but an external discipline, where one conforms to established procedures, one is taught not to question. All of these things are part of a socialization process. One learns that social change comes by sitting down in committees, that it's, you can't fight city hall, that it's slow, that it's moderate. This is, to some extent, the way a university as an institution which must be responsible to outside power groups, to outside institutions, to the places it gets its money from. This is part of the way in which it preserves established procedures. What I'm asking is that we recognize that the university operates not in a vacuum, but in a society, and that we as individuals say on these two days that we are not going to continue to function in the role of people in an institution which, in effect, preserves established relationships and established ways of thinking. That we are going to encourage our fellow faculty people and students and everyone else in our university community to take these days off, not to continue to make American society go for two days. To say, on these two days, American society will not function as it does other days of the year. This is the only way, this is the only weapon we have, the institution we work in, to make our point dramatically and effectively. If we simply act as individuals, well, there's nothing too much to hope for. It seems to me that it's our moral responsibility, our responsibility to the society in general, to take this very minimal sort of step by saying we will encourage people not to do what they do every day of the year on these two days. Battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds. Are getting so All right, so 
Can you paint a picture of what Portland State looked like in 1970? Maybe what the atmosphere was like? I think that speech gave us somewhat of an idea, but kind of want to hear in your words. Well, students seemed real anxious to be deprogrammed from the conception of the country that they had received in high school and through their parents and through their religious communities. I was someone who, of course, identified with the new left wing of historical analysis and um, radicalized by the Vietnam War. And so my classes and my lectures had something of an edge, and it, it seemed to resonate with students who, if anything, were even more cynical in the end than I was. Um, I think that Portland State was far more of an urban institution in terms of the student body. I, I get the feeling that it's increasingly suburban uh, these days, and that has something to do, I think, with the financial structure of who comes to public universities at this point. But um, the students that I knew who were, by the way, not that much younger than I was, <laughs> um, were very informal and unpretentious, and I made a lot of friends, particularly during the strike season of 1969 and 1970. It generally was a place I felt fairly at home in. The whole student movement at the most was 500 out of 10,000, and more like 200, I think. But a pretty cohesive group, hung around. You could always find someone to sit with in the cafeteria who you knew, you know. Um, and there was a group of young faculty, all of whom had come in to, Ant uh, to uh, Portland State about the same year I did, 1968. Um, I had a whole bunch of friends on the faculty at that time. Um, from sociology and from English literature and philosophy and psychology. Um, we even formed a group called the New University Conference, which was the grown-up SDS. <laughs> um, didn't do much, but <laughs> we're a force, I guess, to be reckoned with on some level. But, um, uh, you know, there was no park blocks. I mean, there was a park blocks, but there was traffic that flowed, and that ended with the the Portland State strike after the barricades were put up there and eventually it was made into uh, a non-vehicle kind of uh, passageway. Um, there was a great bar um, where the, um, the View building is on that main floor there where the Starbucks sure. is uh, called Lydia's. Hmm. It had like formal, what do you call it, plastic black, not formaldehyde, but uh, <laughs> um, sort of lounge coverings, you know, on the chair, and they played country music, great country music jukebox. I mean, it was, there was a lot of hangovers from the old neighborhood there still, yeah. you know. There was Papa John's Market, um, where the business administration building is being renovated today. Yeah. It was sort of a charming place. <laughs> so let's put some of this in sequence. Uh, the, what we just heard was an archival clip um, of... Professor Horowitz speaking at a faculty meeting, which was on November 13th and 14th, 1969. And the context of that was that the, the students had, were preparing for one of the moratorium strikes, and they had reached out to the faculty to support that strike. And in this archival recording, um, which is actually in the PSU Special Collections, you can hear other professors speak their their opinions on this, many for many against, and it's very an interesting piece. I mean, what do you remember from that meeting, and maybe from your own colleagues in the history department? Were you were you the the radical in the history department this first year, or how, what was the what was your place in the history department at that time? Um, there was I had another radical colleague, Mario Fenyo. Um, he had been there earlier than I was. He was Hungarian and taught Central European history, uh, but I was more active and, and more out front. I had come to the position at Portland State, you know, figuring, hey, I'd gotten away, I'd gotten out of the draft, so that I had a moral responsibility to oppose the war, mm -hmm. because I had student deferments until I was over the age of 27 when they weren't taking people, you know, and then, um, and so um, I, I felt I felt that I really had an obligation to be part of the movement, but I wasn't sure how, and gradually, you know, got involved at, at, at Portland State. You know, the, I don't remember speaking at that meeting. <laughs> you know, if I. That wasn't bad. No, it was very good. <laughs> you know, off the top of my head, I can't believe that. I don't usually speak off the top of my <laughs> head. But um, if I had known, I would have used that some of that for the memoir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember that. <laughs> I remember other people speaking. Yeah. 
it's I think Steve Kosikoff from Speech, but I don't I didn't remember that. Yeah. They the faculty had supported the first moratorium in October, mm-hmm. but they didn't support this one. And the reason people didn't is they thought that the university should not be politicized. You know, that the university shouldn't be the agent of one particular political viewpoint. And so as a result, I was sent out to Mount Hood Community College for their moratorium okay. uh, with Mike Phillips from Speech and I gave a, a speech there that's a little talk there that's described in the memoir where I just basically talked to 15 people who were in a corner of the gymnasium of the community college while the um, um, cheerleaders practiced across the way of the gym. And I could see these people were very uneasy and nervous about you know supporting the moratorium out there in East County. And I just told them how important they were. They were part of a national movement. I didn't even talk about the war, you know. I just said, and we will win, you know. We will prevail, you know. Yeah. Well, and then April 1970, the Kent State shootings, and then May, the the strike that followed here at PSU. Tell us, what was the mood like among students and faculty prior to the protests following the shooting and then after the violent clash with the police? Well, there had been a lot of activism at Portland State about uh, harassing the recruiters for the CIA and recruiters for the Marines and some of the faculty, some of my colleagues had been arrested and students had been arrested, you know. And um, the police had been called in on a couple of occasions. You know, there's some pretty bad feelings between the administration and and the student activists. Um, and it was sort of building up to, the, you know, the invasion of Cambodia and, and the Kent State shootings. Um, I, it's, it's hard for me to say what other people thought. I know that I thought, oh, boy, we've crossed a line. Now, you know, they're, they... <laughs> are going to shoot students. They're going to shoot their own children, you know. And I really thought, I don't agree with this now, but I thought then that the Nixon administration was moving into what I called managerial fascism, you know, that they were going a step further. I, I don't agree with that assessment now, but that's what I thought at the time. And it was easy to get really carried away, you know, sure. uh, with the impact of it and the shock of it, you know. Um, and I remember crossing the campus with... Um, my friend Penny Allen, who later becomes a filmmaker, she was in uh, French foreign languages, and she said, David, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. And I said, well, I think there's a strike committee being organized <laughs> among the students, you know. And I just put myself at the disposal of the students, you know. Um, I was always a sort of a talking head <laughs> rather than an activist. So... I want to know exactly what happened to you because you you were um, let's see you had a warrant out for you because of your actions during the strike. What did you do yeah. to get that to get the city's attention that way? Well, um, on the first day of the strike, I showed up down at the park blocks where I told we knew the headquarters would be. There was going to be a medical tent there and a headquarters in my you know cowboy boots you know and jeans. And somebody said, hey, we need people to go into the classrooms and get people to come out on strike, you know. And for some reason, I had not had any coffee yet, and I had a very short fuse. I didn't have my customary subtlety. And so I went into this classroom with this, and there was this other woman there. And I said, listen, folks. This is not an ordinary day. You know, we've had a shooting of students, and the American college system is going to halt today, and we need people to come out into the streets. This is not just ordinary work. And somebody in the back of the room objected to my being there and came up and pushed me (laughs) to push me out. And then the woman, who I'd never seen before and never would see again, started cursing out at these people in pretty foul street language. (laughs) And this guy pushed me, and I said, oh, where I come from, if somebody pushes me, I p- you push back. And I pushed him back. And then the next thing I knew, I was grabbed from behind by some tall creature who later turned out to be a captain in the National Guard er, Reserve, and he just hauled me out of the room. <laughs> and that was the whole thing. And then... I learned through the grapevine there was a warrant out for my arrest for disorderly conduct that that student who had objected Mm -hmm. had uh, called the police and 
press charges for disorderly conduct. He was protecting the instructor. It happened to be a Russian language class. So who takes a Russian language class in 1970? People who were going to go into intelligence or the yeah. FBI. So, and she was a like, anti-communist refugee, it turned out, you know, a short little woman. So the student thought I was <coughs> – that I was bullying her. Mm. Okay. Which I, I, I didn't even see her really, you know. Sure. <coughs> and so um, it then turned out that um, – the newspapers ran a bulletin that warrant out for fugitive professor. <laughs> so my friend Joe Uris, um, <clears throat> he calls up the police. Oh. He says, um, hey, I understand you're looking for this guy, Horowitz. I just saw him around the campus here. What's the deal? And they said, we're just waiting for him to come in and you know, <laughs> accept the warrant whenever he wants. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I, you know, it seems like you've had a lot of involvement in these uh, social movements. Um, given, you know, these years of hindsight, how do you think that historians can best affect change for social justice within social movements? Um, I think that um, I have somewhat different perspectives than I, I have the same values I had back then. But I've seen a lot. Since then, I've seen the 40 years in the proverbial wilderness that progressives suffered from 1968, you know, to basically 2008, at least, at the very least. Um, And I think that the role of historians was is to encourage people to use their reason in understanding social and political process, which does not necessarily mean uh, being a party to particular disputes, but helping people clear their mind and approach things in in an analytic manner that still is able to express empathy for people who are the victims of various forms of control and oppression. It's a difficult line. It's extremely difficult, and that's sort of what I'm talking about toward the end of the book. And in the epilogue, I kind of have this crisis of faith that, that I tell, and I'm not sure how much that's working. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of challenges to that. But I don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, I think it's certainly admirable. Um, so we're going to share this on the um, blog as well, but there's a student-made film, The Seventh Day, which documents the student-led actions in the South Park blocks. It, you know, From watching it, it seems like an excellent source for historians, but obviously films, have, uh, films and photographs have... Um, Maybe not credibility issues, but there's issues with how that can be used as a source. So I guess my question is to you is how do you feel that films and photographs can be used to examine the past? Well, I'm very familiar with the film. I've seen it many times. Um, the Kick-Ass History folks had a whole session about that film a couple of uh, years ago, and they asked me to comment on it. And oh, really? It was just after the season of the Occupiers, and okay. the session was built as the original Portland Occupiers. Huh. Um, I, <laughs> um, and um, um, I, I think the film is really valuable in, in, in giving you the kind of emotions of the moment, and it even deals with the students who were opposed to the strike. Yeah. Uh, they were the so-called jocks, as they were called then. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and um, interviews with people like Joe Uris, who you know were pa- part of the scene. Um, there were a lot of kind of crazy things that happened in connection with the strike. You know, the food fight in the cafeteria, which is really ridiculous. The trashing of the student union when there was a party held and people from off campus apparently came in, and you know, all kinds of disrespectful you know <laughs> approaches to the building and so forth. That, that it's, it's crazy stuff. And I was involved in some things I'm not so proud of. We tried to block traffic on Broadway. Yeah. We were just so enraged. And, you know, I think about it in retrospective. I mean, I'm talking about myself here as yeah. well. What were we trying to do? People are going to work or people are going to pick up their kids and we're trying to banging on cars. And I mean, it's just a temper tantrum, you know. Yeah. Um, that was stupid, you know. But you, it's amazing how you can get carried away by, by, by the emotion of it. And, you know, I guess you asked about history, and, you know, I mean, I think part of the job of a historian is 
to kind of weed through <laughs> the emotions that pervade people at the time and to, and to kind of put things in context, you know. So um, the, well, I think the movie is a wonderful document, but th there are aspects, um, you know, of that strike that I think are referred to in, in the narrative, um, you know, that um, aren't so wonderful. Um, it's great pictures of... Um, the old, the older woman who is marching arm in arm as they go to protest the police brutality and what are you doing to our young people? Uh, she was very unusual. Scenes, yeah. Most public opinion was against us. Yeah. <laughs> So in that epilogue, in the final chapter of your memoir, you present a set of rules for cultural and historical study. Um, my first question is, why did you feel this was necessary, and what did you hope to achieve um, through communicating these rules? I think this happened when um, I, skid, I, helped to, I set up a, um, a, a panel discussion on the election of 2004. <laughs> Um, which was so disappointing, <laughs> in which uh, George W. Bush was reelected over John Kerry, and John Kerry was attacked for um, he was uh, um, swift boated and right. um, just a very dispiriting election. And trying to come to terms with change and 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 trying to position the progressive movement on the side of ordinary people, not as a group of elites trying to dictate to ordinary people how they should behave. So, I, um, you know, when I, um, when I get anxious and stirred up, I try to write stuff. It's the only way I can keep myself sane and spare my poor wife from my rants. <laughs> um, I'm going through one of those right now okay. on uh, refugees <laughs> yeah. and the tone of... Uh, political discussion in the United States it's just bubbling up in me yeah. uh, so that's where this came from um, I um, I've, I've had a lot of impatience with the progressive elements of the progressive movement in um, the last 10-15 years or what have you um, and I still do even though I, I believe myself to be a progressive and I want the same things that progressives say they want um, social justice and equity and um, f freedom from oppression and um, reason in, in public policy and compassion for for other people all those things you know are basic values that I, that I share uh, but I think sometimes the, uh, the left gets so rigid and ideological and comes from a, a position of social superiority and can't really lecture people you know and as I say in there somewhere I think you can't change people you don't respect you know, and, and that's part of the problem of progressive intellectuals and activists. It's so easy to disrespect the people. And, you know, I fall victim to it myself. I have in the last few days. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's hard sometimes. It's hard. My wife says it's hard to be a populist among the people, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, she, she teases me, but it's really true. <laughs> um, I read something this summer. Uh, my friend Michael Kazin, um, who's done a wonderful biography of the great reformer William Jennings Bryan of the 1890s, no sermon, however perceptive, could accomplish its end without a canny political strategy. Hmm. And that was his criticism of Bryan, who was a figure he has a lot of affection for in his biography, but whose limitations he, he understands. And Kazin um, has written about the dream of the American left. You know, he is a leftist. Um, and he understands that you need hard-headed political strategies and you have, to, you have to have empathy not just for the people who you quickly identify with, but for people you don't identify with who need to be your allies if there's to be social change. Mm -hmm. So I guess this, this list... K 
came out of my frustrations, as most of my writing does. Um, I just think um, there needs to be more clarity of thought and, and more true compassion, you know, among people who consider themselves part of the left and part of the cosmopolitan culture. I have the same critiques of some of the tendencies of general education and its preciousness in a place like Portland State, you know, that makes up a section of, of the memoir as well. So, you know, with um, those sort of changing views on, um, I guess, the progressive movement, has that impacted the way that, I guess, you approach teaching, um, you know, developing these 15 rules? Is that something you also apply to yeah, your teaching method? it definitely is. Um, you know, when I started teaching, I was kind of an ideologue. <laughs> I was kind of reciting, you know, the maxims of radical historians like William Appleman Williams, you know, and it was sort of abstract. Um, and um, through a various number of influences, uh, which I describe in the book, um, I've come to what I think is a more grounded view of history. And um, I, I came became very interested in what I call um, the the populist impulse, the, the impulse of, uh, that, that honors and describes and challenges ordinary people. And whether that's through uh, my interests in the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s or in the anti-interventionists before World War II or even among the opponents of civil rights in the 1960s, um, I, I try to talk about um, the sensibilities of ordinary people even when I don't agree with them. And then I produced a book on populist cultural expression to talk about film and music and poetry and uh, as it expresses uh, the lives, relates to the lives of ordinary people in, in modern American history. So um, I, the one thing I try to do in teaching is make my teaching accessible. Um, I'm a slow learner, and so that helps me in a way be a better teacher. Uh, because I, I try to break things down and simplify them, you know. Um, I, I try to do without jargon, um, and I try to simplify my teaching. I don't have a lot of faddish kind of conventions in my classes, um, like people keeping journals or doing oral reports or group work or what have you, or making films <laughs> and so forth. Um, I just kind of try to do nuts and bolts and try to show that you can learn a good deal by um, involving yourself in the details of a situation and seeing their context. So that brings us to near our end. Um, your last chapter, the epilogue, also has 10 principles for social movements, which I wish we had more time to get into. But I do want to connect your main, one of your main areas of study and research, American populism. Um, I wanted to kind of connect that to the current uh, presidential elections and get your feedback and get your opinion on this wave of populism that's coming from Donald Trump. Also, I think folks see it in the Bernie Sanders campaign. What is your uh, what is your explanation of Donald Trump's populist approach and success, or what do you think about when you hear the, hear these speeches? Yeah, well, Donald Trump's populism is part of a long tradition of conservative populism, and a lot of students have trouble with that idea that populism can be conservative, and it basically says that um, conservative populism holds that the, the people's virtues are superior to those of the elite, which unlike the elite in the imagination of leftists the elite in the imagination of conservatives is the intellect are the intellectual and political classes mm -hmm. and that's something hard difficult to get used to and that was the theme of my book America's political class under fire it was all about what we generally call anti-intellectualism and what i sought to do was to contextualize that instead of just demonizing it mm -hmm. to explain where it came from even though at times i find it extremely offensive and I do find it extremely offensive with Mr. Trump. But he's, he's basically relying on um, an old tradition of conservative populism. However, in the last few days, I'm beginning to wonder if it's not so much conservative populism as almost a form of fascism. And I don't use that word lightly. But Trump represents the triumph of the will, the idea that I can make it happen, you know, just through personal will. 
xenophobia of the worst kind, denigration of you know people outside his own reference group, the spreading of fear and the reliance on militarism. To me, those are all parts of historical fascism. He may be closer to Mussolini than to our friends in the Third Reich. <laughs> um, but it, it's extremely disturbing to me. It's distre- extremely, excuse me, extremely disturbing to me when people spread fear for the sake of spreading fear, ungrounded fear. And I realize that events in the world, like the attacks in Paris, make many people fearful. My fear is not so much of an, uh, an attack here in the United States, is that the political climate in the United States may veer toward the extreme right and that kind of xenophobia, which, by the way, will only, only exaggerate the threat of terrorism. So I'm just extremely upset. And it, it makes me wonder. Here we are in the university teaching rational discourse. How much impact are we really having on society? I mean, the, the, I continually have crises of faith. Yeah, it kind of comes back to what you were saying about trying to have that balanced approach, you know, coming from a historical perspective. But that's difficult when you're addressing an issue that morally you feel there is a right and wrong side trying to right. find a, a central view. So My objection to, you know, some to historians sometimes is uh, they're so sometimes you can be so analytic that you neglect the, the emotions that are driving people and emotions are very important in understanding yeah. human behavior mm-hmm. and sometimes those emotions seem really ugly well thanks so much for for coming down here today this has been a great conversation i, I wish we had another hour to speak with you i think you know ryan and i both have a lot more to ask um but you know, uh, your book just came out. People can probably get a little bit more insight into some of what we talked about there. Um, and then, of course, you teach here at Portland State. Right. So I think any right. students listening, you know, jump on the opportunity to take a class with this man. Thanks should, again, Mr. Horowitz. Great. I should also mention the book's available on Kindle for people who go that route. <laughs> That's, go. That is good to mention. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the Portland State Department of History, recorded at KPSU Portland. Music in this episode from Crosby, Stills, Nash, Willie Nelson, Joan Baez, Jimi Hendrix, Buffalo Springfield, Helen Merrill, Joni Mitchell, and Jean Clark. You can hear other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting kpsu.org. Find us on the schedule there. Or go to pdx.edu slash history. We're also on Facebook and Twitter under Beyond Footnotes. Uh, We try to post there pretty regularly. So if you follow along, be able to get some more details on our next show, which will be in two weeks here. Um, Signing off, this has been Joshua Justice. I'm Ryan Wisnor. Thanks so much for listening.